morning. There we go. Father, we come to you this morning, grateful hearts for your word and for the work that it does. I pray, Lord, as we look at this parable, uh, I suspect at least the parable of the talents, probably familiar to, to all of us, but this parable not as much. And with them not being the same parable, Lord, I do pray that you would give us new understanding and you give us application, reminders, more than likely, of things that we need to be doing in terms of being faithful stewards to you. I pray, Lord, that you can be pleased with this time. I do thank you for the opportunity to gather every Lord's Day like this, and I ask that we wouldn't take it for granted and that we'd commit this time fully to you and labor to remove any distractions from our minds and be focused on what you want to say to us through the scriptures. Think about any of the young people who would be here, uh, even children, Lord, and thankful for the word working in their hearts as well. We'd pray for any unbelievers who have joined us, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that you'd help them to see their need for Christ, that you'd grant them repentance from sins and faith in him. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you would just minister to each of us corporately, but really privately through your Holy Spirit's work. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, good to see all of you. The title this morning's sermon is Entrusted with the Gospel and the Parable of the Minas. Entrusted with the Gospel and the Parable of the Minas. We're working our way verse by verse through Luke's Gospel on Sunday mornings when we find ourselves at Luke 19, verse 11. John MacArthur wrote, All Christians are but God's stewards. Everything we have is on loan from the Lord, entrusted to us for a while to use in serving Him. And so as you can tell from the scripture reading, this morning's parable uh, is about the minas. It's similar to the parable of the talents. It's, those are probably the two premier parables on stewardships. And I hope that this parable can challenge you like it has challenged me in my studying this week. This parable is not the same as the parable of talents there, uh, that's in, found in Matthew 25, 14 to 30, which I suspect is probably the parable we're more familiar with. And so uh, let me briefly list the differences. First, the parable of the talents was preached on the Mount of Olives after Jesus had already entered Jerusalem. But as you know from our last few sermons, Jesus has been heading to Jerusalem. He was outside Jericho, passed through Jericho, met with Zacchaeus, but he hasn't yet entered Jerusalem yet. So the parable of the minus was preached on the way to Jerusalem. Second, the parable of the talents deals with how many servants? The parable of the talents. How many servants? Three servants. The parable of the minas deals with ten servants and then some number of enemies. Third, in the parable of the talents, the three servants receive how many talents? In the parable of the talents, how many talents do the servants receive? They receive five, yeah, two, and one. But in the parable of the minas, each of the servants receives one mina. They receive the exact same amount. Fourth, talents and minas are different amounts. A talent was about 20 years wages. A mina was about three months wages. And then fifth, in the parable of the talents, the two faithful servants doubled their investments. You remember the servant who'd been given five talents came back with five more. The servant given two talents came back with with two more. But in the parable of the minas, one servant reports taking his talent and returning tenfold, and another servant reports earning fivefold. Sixth, in the parable of the talents, the faithful servants received the same reward, which was being told, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But in the parable of the minas, 
the faithful servants are rewarded by putting in charge of cities that correspond with how much their minas or investment returned. So I just want you to be encouraged, even if you've heard teaching on the parable of the talents before, this parable is different, and hopefully you'll learn some new truths. Before we jump into the parable, I want you to understand the context for it. So briefly look one chapter to the left at Luke 18.31. Do your Bibles have a heading around Luke 18.31? What's the heading? Jesus foretells his death for the third time just in Luke's gospel. So Jesus had been telling the disciples he was going to be killed, but they never understood it. Look at, look at Luke 18.34. It says, But they understood none of these things, despite the great detail Jesus gave even about being flogged. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So he spelled out how he would die, but they were confused or was hidden from them. Now turn back to Luke 19, keeping this in mind that they did not think Jesus would die. And tell me what account takes place right after the parable of the minas. What account takes place right after the parable of the minas? The triumphal entry. So Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem. Within a few days, he's going to be killed. So here's what I want you to think about. Even though Jesus had repeatedly been telling the disciples he was going to be killed, they did not believe that. He's only a few days from entering Jerusalem, where he will be killed, but that's the last thing from their minds, or at least the last thing that they could believe would happen. And there's one other thing that makes this even more interesting. Jesus was crucified on Passover, and Passover was a time that built considerable anticipation about the Messiah delivering the Jews from Rome, because Passover was the celebration of Moses delivering the Hebrews from Egypt. And so every Passover, there was more uh, anticipation and even frustration, anticipation in the Jews about being delivered and frustration that they had not been delivered yet. And so as Passover approaches, there's this belief that this could be the time that God fulfills his promises in the old covenant. The Messiah comes, the son of David, he sits on the throne of David, he casts off the Roman oppression that we're experiencing, and the Messiah becomes to us what Moses was to the, the Hebrews in his day. He delivers us from the Romans like Moses delivered the, the Hebrews from the Egyptians. So, if Jesus is heading into Jerusalem to be killed, but the disciples think he's not going there to be killed, why do the disciples think that Jesus is heading into Jerusalem? To become king, yes. So I just want you to understand the context in which this parable is preached. I want you to understand that Jesus is heading into Jerusalem to be crucified, but they think that he's heading into Jerusalem to become king. Or another way to say it is they think he's heading into Jerusalem to set up his kingdom. That's the context. Look at Luke 19, 11. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, that that kingdom would be set up. Jesus would establish it, set on David's throne. And so Jesus preaches the parable of the minas to dispel this belief that he would be setting up his physical kingdom. Verse 12, or at least setting it up soon. Jesus said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. 
the nobleman is Jesus, the far country is heaven. So this is Jesus's way of saying, I am not setting up my kingdom on the earth right now. I must ascend to heaven first. I will set up my kingdom when I return. So he wants all of his disciples, including us, remaining faithful between these two events, between his ascension and going into that taking a journey into a far country, and his return to set up his kingdom. So this parable is intended to produce the faithfulness that our Lord wants between those two events. So verse 13, he says, that this master calls ten of his servants. He gives them ten minas, and he says to them, engage in business until I come. So the servants are supposed to use the minas or the money to do business, and when the master returns, they're going to give back to him more than was given to them. And that's what, how investing works, right? You provide this investment, and you expect a return on it. Now, in the parable of the talents, the talents represent the gifts or abilities that we have, which is why each of the servants receive different amounts, because we all have differing gifts and abilities. But in the parable of minas, each servant receives the same amount, one mina, because the mina represents the gospel, which we have all received in equal or identical measure. And this brings us to lesson one. The minas represent the gospel each of us have been entrusted with. The minas represent the gospel each of us have been entrusted with. When I started studying this parable, I did not know that the ten minas represented the Gospels. But numerous commentaries made this point. Here are just two quotes of many that I could give you. Matthew Henry wrote, The principal difference from the parable of the talents is that the mina is the gift of the Gospel, which is the same to all who hear it. But with the talents, God gives different capacities. William Hendrickson wrote, with that mina, each of these servants must do business. That is the point of the parable, that those who have heard the gospel must proclaim it. It's fitting for the minas to represent the gospel because the New Testament describes the gospel as something that we have been entrusted with, like a stewardship. Here's just two verses, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. 1 Timothy 1.11, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, maybe you've never thought of the gospel as one of your most important stewardships, but I would hope that this parable accomplishes that for you. So if someone asked you about the most important stewardships in your life, if you have children, you would say, my children, I must be faithful to them. And I would say amen to that. Or if you're married, you would say, my marriage, my spouse, this is one of my most important stewardships, and I would say amen to that. Or maybe you would say, God's given me time and money, and these are two of my most important stewardships, how I spend my time, how I spend my money, and I would say amen to that. But the parable of the minas encourages us to see the gospel as one of our most important stewardships as well. Now, quick question. In one word, what's required of stewards? In one word, what's required of stewards? faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 4.1, we should be regarded as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
when it says the mysteries of God, that we're stewards of the mysteries of God, that's another way to refer to the gospel. So listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1. We should be regarded as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, or, mis- or stewards of the gospel. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So the two verses back to back that discuss us being stewards of the gospel also discuss the need for us to be faithful. So when Paul wants to talk about the us being stewards, he highlights the gospel and the need for us to be faithful with it. So what does it mean to be a faithful steward of the gospel? Well, based on this parable, it seems to mean spreading the gospel so that your minas multiplies. And so I would say perhaps there's someone in your life that you felt burdened to share the gospel with. And if you haven't yet, then I hope that this sermon or this parable would give you the nudge you need. So maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a fellow student, maybe it's a family member. And maybe if you're like me, you've been procrastinating. This is not an easy area of obedience in life. It's easier to pray, or it's easier to read the Word, or it's easier to go to church, or it's easier to fellowship. And when it comes to preaching the gospel, you find it as challenging as I do. And so you procrastinate, or we procrastinate. Well, hopefully this will encourage us to respond obediently. We could be like the servant in Luke 19, 20. We're going to deal with him more next week. We only get through half the parable this morning. But maybe we're like the servant in Luke 19, 20, who says, Lord, here's your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. Now, if the mina represents the gospel, and you've got this servant that says, hey, I kept it, it's nice and safe for you, right, master? I've kept it tucked away here, nothing's happened to it, and I feel like sometimes that's kind of what we do with the gospel, just keeping it to ourselves. Maybe you've been telling yourself, I'm waiting for just the right moment, but deep down you know that's just an excuse. I would discourage you from putting it off any longer. Make a commitment to preach the gospel to that person or to those people that God has put on your heart. We're going to skip Luke 19, 14 for now. We'll come back to that when we deal with the second half of the sermon next week because it's connected to the end of the parable. For now, look at verse 15. So Luke 19, 15, which hopefully gives all of us more incentive to be faithful stewards because it says... When he returned, when the master returned, having received the kingdom or bringing the kingdom with him, this is Christ's second coming when he comes to physically establish his kingdom on the earth, he orders these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So he brings the servants in. They have to give an account of their stewardship. And so when the master returns, he wants all of his servants to give an account of what they've done with the gospel that's been entrusted to them. And this introduces one of the more common questions that I've heard as a pastor. So I'll just ask you, are we judged as Christians? Okay, this is a trick question. So I'll tell you when it's not a trick question. This is a trick question because if you said, no, we're not judged, that would be correct if you meant no, our sins are not judged because our sins were judged and paid for at the cross. But if you said, yes, we're judged because our faithfulness is judged or we're judged to see if we've been faithful stewards, then that would be correct. And this brings us to lesson two. God judges our faithfulness versus our sin. Lesson two, God judges our faithfulness versus our sin. Our sins are not judged, but our faithfulness as stewards will be judged. And this judgment for believers occurs at the judgment seat of Christ. So let me say that one more time. 
The judgment for believers occurs at what's called the judgment seat of Christ, which stands in contrast to the judgment unbelievers experience at the great white throne judgment. Two different judgments. And here's just two verses about the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14, 10. Paul says, we will stand, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul's use of the word we tells us that he's including himself here. He's talking about believers. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we will give an account of our stewardship, and if we've been faithful, it says that we will be rewarded. The interesting part is the end of 2 Corinthians 5.10, listen to this, I'll read it one more time, just listen to the end of the verse. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, and then he says, whether good or evil. And the part that can stand out a bit is whether we have done evil. That is judged. Well, what does that mean? If our sin or the evil we've committed has already been judged, then what does Paul mean when he says that our evil is judged? I take this to mean that there is a loss of rewards then. So if you say, I won't be punished for my sins, that's true, but it's also true that when we sin, we could be forfeiting eternal rewards. 1 Corinthians 3.15, this is probably what Paul meant when he said, if anyone's work is burned, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. One more time, Paul said, if anyone's work is burned, he'll suffer loss. I take that to mean loss of rewards, but he himself will be saved, which is to say we're not going to lose our salvation but we could be forfeiting rewards because of our unfaithfulness or our sin. Look what happens with the next servant, or actually look what happens with the first servant. Verse 16, the first servant came before Jesus saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. So the first servant multiplied the mina he was given, so produced 10 minas more. So maybe this means that 10 people came to salvation as a result of his preaching. He took the gospel, preached it, so that the gospel then was spread to 10 other people. So his, in that sense, his mina became 10 more minas. And this brings us to lesson three. Multiplication of the minas represents the spread of the gospel. Multiplication of the minas represents the spread of the gospel. Listen to Paul praise the Thessalonians for spreading the gospel, or we could say listen to Paul praise the Thessalonians for multiplying the minas that were given to them. 1 Thessalonians 1.8, he said, The word of the Lord sounded forth from you, and I take this also to be synonymous with the gospel. So he says, The word of the Lord of the gospel sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, and your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So he's praising them for spreading their minas or spreading the gospel. Maybe this is why Paul even asked the Thessalonians to pray for him to be able to multiply his mina or spread the gospel as well as them. In second Thess- I mean, imagine that. Paul, the great evangelist, asked this of a church, that a church would pray for him to be able to spread the gospel as well as they were doing. Listen to this, 2 Thessalonians 3.1. Paul says, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord, or I take that to mean the gospel, may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. So Paul says, just pray that the gospel can spread forth from me as well as it has spread forth from all of you. Now I want to show you what this multiplication of the minas looked like in the early church, because the idea is Jesus is going to be departing, ascending to heaven, 
leaving the disciples behind, giving them minas or the gospel and expecting, expecting them to spread their minas or spread the gospel. And so did the gospel spread by the disciples or the apostles' work in the early church? I want to show you that. Turn to Acts numeral, or Acts 1-9. Turn to Acts 1 9. Okay, so Acts 1 9. When he has said these things, they're looking on, he's lifted up, and a cloud took Jesus out of their sight. So this is the ascension. Or in the language of Luke 19, 12, this is the man who's going on a journey to receive a kingdom and then return, right? This is the nobleman going into a far country to receive a kingdom for himself. Look a few verses later in verse 15. In those days, Acts 1, 15, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, now if you pause there, this is not a true question, but how many believers are there at this time? How many believers are there? Well, 120, right? It says there's 120. So it's kind of sad that at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, there's only 120 believers who have gathered. But keep this number in mind. So generally, the spread of the church did not happen because of Jesus' earthly ministry. It happened because that ministry was largely rejected through the spread of the gospel um, through the apostles spreading the gospel. So look in Acts 2. So Peter preaches in Acts 2, verses 14 through 39. And now look in verse 41 after Peter finishes this sermon. Acts 2, 41. So those, so those who received Peter's word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now that's multiplication, isn't it? We just went from 120 to 3,120, because 3,000 are added to that 120. So 120 to 3,120. Look at Acts 4.4. 4. Peter and John are preaching. It says, Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. More multiplication of minas. 120, 3,000, 5,000. Look another chapter to the right. This will be the last time. Acts 5.28. So the apostles were preaching. And they're told in Acts 5.28, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching or preaching. So now we don't even get a number. We're just told that the gospel has filled all of Jerusalem. I mean, that's multiplication. Now the minas have went out to everyone in all of Jerusalem. So serious was the multiplication in the early church, and it reveals God's desire with the minas that he has entrusted us with. Now turn back to Luke 19, 17, to see how the first servant's rewarded for his faithfulness. Luke 19, 17, Jesus said to him, or the master said to him, excuse me, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. So this master is pleased with the servant. And can I just tell you one of the things, and it's, it, this is one of the similarities with the parable of the talents. It's very encouraging to me that 
the master is pleased with this man who had been faithful in a very little. It is encouraging to me that the Lord can be pleased with us for being faithful in very little. If I thought that the Lord would only be pleased with us if we were faithful in very much, that would be particularly discouraging to me. So the servant, he went from being a servant to being a ruler. Do you see that? He goes from being a servant to now being a ruler, a ruler over 10 cities. He gets this huge promotion. So his faithfulness earned him more responsibility. I think I was going over the sermon with Katie, and she said, this isn't normally how I think about rewards, <laughs> right? But in the God's economy, to be faithful is to be given more responsibility. In God's economy, to be a faithful steward is to be given more to steward. And in this case, it's 10 cities, which we'll talk about in a moment. It's greater service in the future for the Lord. We see the same thing with the second servant. Luke 19, 18, the, ser- the second servant came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And so maybe this means five people were saved because of his preaching. Verse 19, and he said to him, you're to be over five cities. Now, one of the parts that might stand out to you, because this is different than the parable of the talents, and the parable of the talents, they're just ushered into the Lord's presence, ushered into experience or sharing the Lord's joy with him, which I take to mean the parable of the talents is describing entrance into heaven itself. Well, here this clearly isn't the case. We're told that they're given authority over cities corresponding to the number of minas that they returned. One servant brought returned 10 minas, gets put over 10 cities. Another servant returns five minas, gets put over five cities. Now, my suspicion is this is something that you've probably had a nagging question about because it's a theme in Scripture that we rule and reign with Christ. Most Christians know that we rule and reign with Christ because that is stated so many times in the Bible, in the Old Testament as well as the New. I even thought of pausing, stopping the sermon and having another, at this point and then having another sermon next week just on ruling and reigning with Christ. But I didn't, want to, I didn't want this to stretch out that long, and I wasn't sure that, that were, there was really that much content on it because while we know we rule and reign with Christ, we don't know exactly what that looks like. So unfortunately, I can tell you we rule and reign with Christ, but I can't give you the details about what to expect when that happens. Now, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. I'm just going to go through a few verses making the point that we rule and reign with Christ, and then I'll try to explain what this means. We will not turn back to Luke. Okay, so Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. Jesus is speaking to the church at Thyatira. Revelation 2.26, speaking to the church of Thyatira, Jesus says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, notice this, to him I will give authority over the nations. Jesus says he's going to give authority over the nations, fairly synonymous or parallel with being given authority over the cities from Luke chapter 19. And when it says the one who conquers, this is the common way in Jesus's letters to the seven churches to refer to believers. Believers are those who have conquered, not in their own effort, 
but, been, but conquered through Christ, conquered sin, conquered death. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And so it's very fitting to think of yourself as a conqueror. I think, sadly, the way many churches, or especially some, um, some music, even the music that would call itself Christian, would want you to believe that you're the conqueror because of what you've done or could do, but the reality is we are only conquerors because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And so right here it says, to the one who conquers, which is a way to say to a believer, and keeps my word to the end, to him I'll give authority over the nations. Verse 27, and he, that's the one who conquers, will rule them, that's the nations, with a rod of iron, as when earth and pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. This is a quote of Psalm 2, which is about the Messiah, but here we see the Messiah applying this to us and saying that we will be the ones with him who will be ruling the nations. So in Psalm 2, God the Father promised the Son that he would rule the nations, and Jesus says he's going to give us some of that authority that the Father gave him. Look in Revelation 3, verse 21, one chapter to the right. Jesus is speaking to the church at Laodicea. Revelation 3.21, to the one who conquers, or again, believers. Jesus says, notice this, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You probably wouldn't believe this if it wasn't written here, but we have Jesus telling a church or saying to believers that they will be invited to sit with him on his throne. So Jesus is giving authority to the saints, going so far as to say we will sit with him. Look at Revelation 5, verse 10. Revelation 5 brings us into the throne room of God. Revelation 5, verse 10. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and notice this, they shall reign on the earth. And this is being said to the Lamb, to Christ, that the Lamb has made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And the them, or the kingdom and priests, is the church, is saints, and it says that we will reign on the earth. Okay, now hold on to this for a moment that it says we're going to reign on the earth. Because in 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul wanted to condemn the Corinthians for all the disputes that were happening among them, he says something, and it's one of those moments where I wish I had more insight into what exactly it means, that they needed to be able to settle their disputes because they were going to be doing what in the future? Huh? Paul told the Corinthians, you need to settle your disputes because you're going to be judging angels. If you can't resolve these minor issues you're dealing with, how are you going to be able to judge angels in the future? Just listen to this. 1 Corinthians 6, 2, Paul says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? It says judge, but I take this to mean rule. Because it's talking about judging or ruling angels, we could think perhaps that this means in heaven because that's where the angels are. So you read this and it's like, okay, if we're going to be judging or ruling over angels, then that must mean when we get to heaven. But that's not the case. We just saw that it says we're going to reign on the earth. That's what it says. Revelation 5, 
the end of verse 10, you made him a kingdom, they shall reign on the earth. This is referring to the millennium, the millennial kingdom, when we rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And this brings us to lesson four. Faithfulness with the gospel is rewarded with authority during the millennium. Lesson four, faithfulness with the gospel is rewarded with authority during the millennium. We had somewhat of a preview of this recently during a sermon and then during Sunday school when we talked about Jesus being our kinsman redeemer because who did God originally put over creation? Don't say Jesus. Who did God, huh? Adam. Man, that's right. Remember Genesis 1, I think it's 26 to 28. I'll put you over, 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 use the word over, 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 over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the land, over, over, over. All this authority had been given to man to rule and reign. And we t- when we looked in Hebrews 2, which is why if I had not already covered Hebrews 2, I would have brought it into this sermon, but I didn't want to I didn't want to repeat the information that I had already preached in that sermon and then covered during Sunday school. But Hebrews 2 is all about this authority being given to man over creation, but then man took the authority that was given to him and then what? Forfeited it to the devil when he sinned. And that's why at the temptation in the wilderness, the devil said to Jesus, all this authority has been given to me and I will give it to you if you will worship me. And Jesus did not dispute it because it was true that Satan had received this authority when we sinned. So Daniel, probably one of the most prophetic books in the Old Testament, in just a few verses, prophesying that man rules over the kingdom. Daniel 7, 18. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. Daniel 7, 22. The saints possessed the kingdom. Daniel 7, 27. The kingdom, dominion, greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Now, so now we're kind of, we're covering a lot here, so I want to try to circle back and connect the dots so you can see how we've gotten here and how it relates to the parable that we're looking at. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be crucified. Many people think that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to set up his kingdom on the earth. He preaches the parable of the Minas to encourage us to be faithful until his second coming when he does actually return and establish his kingdom physically on the earth. We call this the millennium or millennial kingdom. People who have been faithful with the gospel during those events, the ascension and second coming, will be rewarded with authority to rule over the cities during the millennium. Now, the obvious question you'd probably have is who are we going to be ruling over? Or you could even be wondering, how are we going to be reigning? Well, we're going to be reigning in glorified, incorruptible bodies, and we're going to be reigning over people in corrupted human bodies like ours who are repopulating the earth. Now, let me remind you, take a look at your bulletins. We don't have the time to give attention to each of these details, but if you look at this prophetic timeline here, and we go through it quickly because you have to have an understanding of it to understand who we're ruling over. So look at your bulletins. Here's the order. You have Jesus' ascension. After Jesus' ascension, you have the church age, Pentecost. Jesus' ascension in Acts 1, Pentecost, the birth of the church in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit comes down. And think of the church age as Christ's kingdom established on the earth spiritually. So it's kind of like this. You'd say, 
does Jesus have his kingdom on the earth right now? And that's almost a trick question. Yes, spiritually, the church is the spiritual establishment or spiritual kingdom of Christ, but it will later be physically established. At the end of the church age, you have the rapture of the church. Church age believers are raptured, given glorified, incorruptible, immortal bodies. And then after the rapture begins the seven-year tribulation, which the church was able to avoid because we were raptured to heaven. And that's why when you're reading Revelation, you see that you don't see the church between chapter 6 until the church comes back in chapter 19 at the second coming. The church is absent on the earth during all of the 21 judgments that are unleashed. So you have the seven-year tribulation, which the church avoids because of rapture to heaven. And this is important. During the tribulation, so even once the church is raptured and then the tribulation begins, there's a time of great spiritual harvest on the earth. Lots of people will be saved after the rapture. Lots of people will be saved while those judgments are unleashed. Ideally, you want to get saved before that happens, but if people hold out, some number will be saved during the tribulation. So then the tribulation is going to be filled with believers and unbelievers. Then at the end of the tribulation, you have the second coming, Christ returning from heaven with the church that had been raptured. And if you want to turn to Revelation 19, you can see the order for this. So turn with me to Revelation 19. So now the 21 judgments are over. Now we're seeing the second coming of Christ, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Jesus returns from heaven with the church that had been raptured. That's Revelation 19, 11 to 16. After Jesus' second coming is the battle of Armageddon. And this is also important. At the battle of Armageddon, all of the unbelievers are executed. So this will be important for you to follow me on this. At the battle of Armageddon, all of the unbelievers are executed. Jesus establishes his physical kingdom on the earth. The millennium begins. And then all of the believers who were not executed at the battle of Armageddon enter the millennium. So one more time. Jesus returns with the church in glorified, incorruptible, immortal bodies. Individuals on the earth fall into two groups, the same two groups that always exist, believers and unbelievers. Unbelievers are executed at the Battle of Armageddon, and then the believers enter the millennium and begin repopulating the earth. So the millennium, which is Jesus' physical kingdom established on the earth with the church ruling with Christ. Now pause the timeline for a moment and look with me at Revelation 20. We'll start at verse 1 to see some of the verses about the millennium. Look at Revelation 20, verse 1. It says, because John's describing what he sees, it's this vision, and he says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, and this angel is holding in his hand the key to the bottomless, uh, to the bottomless pit, or what we also call the abyss, and he has this great chain that he can chain up the devil with. Now, the pit, it's the temporary prison for demons, it seems, who possess people. Do you remember when, Je- do you remember when Jesus confronted legion? And what did Legion ask Jesus not to do with him? He says, don't throw me into the abyss. Luke 8, 31. Legion begged Jesus not to command him or command them to depart into the abyss. And so it seems to be a prison that even demons 
are aware of and legion requested not being cast into this abyss the devil is imprisoned in the abyss during the millennium look at verse 2 revelation 20 verse 2 this angel seizes the dragon that ancient serpent who's the devil and satan binds him for a thousand years throws him into the pit or the abyss shuts it seals it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended after that he must be released for a little while so that during the millennium the devil is locked up during that thousand years but then he will be released at the end because god has one more task for him which we'll see in a moment so there are two groups in the millennium you have the first group which is the church in the glorified immortal bodies we receive at the rapture and we're described in revelation 20 verse 4 look at verse 4 the same thing we've been reading over and over and over revelation 20 verse 4 then i saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed so just one more time john says he sees thrones and he sees individuals this is us or church age believers or saints seated on the thrones given authority to judge that have been committed to us so that's what's in view in luke 19 when they're given cities to rule over during the millennium it seems to be referring to the authority that we have as we rule and reign with christ and this has not been an exhaustive study whatsoever there are plenty of other places in the new testament and old testament alike discussing the authority that we're given to rule and reign with christ and this is my best understanding of how all of this can be harmonized i wish we had a greater description of what that's going to be like when we rule and reign with christ but unless i'm missing something i don't see it i don't see it described for us i just know that it's something that does happen for us so we're going to rule over this group on the earth that is repopulating the earth in mortal bodies like ours that are corruptible and then these people have children who must decide for themselves whether to submit to christ so during the millennium more people are being born they're giving birth to children some who will become believers some who will be unbelievers who choose not to submit to christ and we reign over those people now sadly many people do not submit to christ during the millennium which brings us to the next event if you want to look back on your bulletin the next event on the prophetic calendar is the battle of gog and magog unbelievers from the millennium are defeated this is in revelation 20 if you want to look at verse 7 look at revelation 20 verse 7 when the thousand years are ended satan will be released from his prison so now satan comes up out of the abyss he's given one more opportunity it says to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth gog and magog that's why this is called the battle of gog and magog to gather them for battle their number is like the sand of the sea and this has always shocked me when so even after people sit under a thousand years of christ's reign when the devil is released he is still able to gather enough rebellious people that it says their number is as the sand of the sea the rebelliousness in our in man's heart is just unfathomable satan is released so you would think well they've known christ for a thousand years and his rule so of course they're going to want to follow him that is definitely not the case even after being under christ for 1000 years there's still a multitude of people who want to rebel so these are the unbelievers who follow satan and this is why satan's released so that he can be their leader and then the last two events on the calendar the great white throne judgment which is in the following verses revelation 20 11 through 15 you can read that on your own later if you'd like 
And this is the judgment for all believers, just, or excuse me, all unbelievers. Just one verse. Look in Revelation 20, verse 15. It says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, so this would be all unbelievers, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So now this is the other judgment. This is the great white throne judgment for unbelievers. Believers go before the judgment seat of Christ. Unbelievers before this great white throne judgment. All whose names are not written in the book of life and then they're cast alive into the lake of fire. It's the most terrifying few verses in Scripture to see these people's work not being sufficient for them to enter heaven and to be cast alive to suffer for all eternity in this way. And then after this, Revelation 21, the new heavens, the new earth, the millennial reign of Christ is over. We no longer reign with him, unless I'm missing something. I believe we no longer reign with Christ. Revelation 21, then the new heaven and the new earth comes down, and we're no longer reigning with Christ. Now, I want to conclude by having you look at one more place. Turn to the left to Revelation 14, 6. Turn to the left to Revelation 14, 6. So this is during the tribulation, and remember I told you during the tribulation, it'll be a time of great spiritual harvest. Many people will come to faith. So even after the rapture, there will be a great revival with many saved. There's the two witnesses who are preaching the gospel. There's 144,000 who are preaching the gospel. Well, there's also this angel that's flying around the earth preaching the gospel. Look in Revelation 14, verse 6. I saw an angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. So during the seven years, multiple ways for the gospel to be preached, a time of great evangelistic efforts from the Lord. And one of those ways, along with the two witnesses and the 144,000, is this angel who flies around the earth preaching the gospel. Now here's why I, look, here's why I wanted to look at this. If God could have an angel fly around the earth preaching the gospel during the tribulation, he could have an angel fly around the earth preaching the gospel during the church age. Another way to say it is, God can have an angel flying around the earth preaching the gospel during the tribulation. God can have an angel flying around the earth preaching the gospel now. Now, am I the only one who thinks that the, an angel could probably preach the gospel much better than us? I think an angel could do a much better job. Angels don't have to worry about persecution. Angels don't have to worry about being laughed at or intimidated. Angels don't have to worry about their flesh flaring up that's going to tempt them to be proud or selfish. Angels can fly. (laughs) How much more effective would they be just for that one reason? We have been spending centuries trying to get the gospel to all areas of the world, we still have unreached areas. But right here, we, can, we see that within a few short years, an angel can preach the gospel to the whole world. So, for reasons I don't know, God has entrusted us with the gospel instead. I don't know what more important stewardship we can have than that. If we are faithful, we receive greater authority when reigning and ruling with Christ. So if God has put on your heart to share the gospel with someone, but you have been putting it off for whatever reason, consider what the gospel does. Consider that it delivers us from the lake of fire. 
consider that it transfers our eternity to the new heavens and new earth and i hope that this parable can serve to motivate you to strive to be faithful because it seems like when our lord returns and we give an account he's going to want to know what we've done with the gospel that has been entrusted with us if you have any questions or i can pray for you in any way i'll be our friend after service and i consider it a privilege to speak with you father i thank you for this parable we need to be reminded regularly at least i do to be faithful with the gospel that it's one of our most important stewardships that we're here for a reason to continue preaching it to others i pray lord that we'd be stirred up that maybe you'd be bringing to mind any people that in our lives whether co-workers or friends or neighbors or family members that you would have us share the gospel with and hopefully this sermon would give everyone myself included the nudge to do so as we continue looking at this parable next week lord we'll see the the sad fate for the individual who has been unfaithful and kept that gospel he was given under the handkerchief and i pray that none of us would be like that lord we pray this in jesus name amen